As the drama that is Esther comes to an end this morning, you will recall with me wicked Haman's final solution was the holocaust of the Jewish people. Having persuaded King Xerxes, the emperor of Persia, to sign the law and enact such a massacre, there is an incredibly climactic reversal. Unbeknown to Haman, the much-loved new queen, Esther, was a Jew. Brought up in the home of the very Jew who had angered Haman so much, that of Mordecai. But who could write such a compelling drama? I mean, who on earth could craft such equal intent and turn it into such unparalleled rejoicing? Who could write such a story? Who on earth could turn darkest mourning into brightest joy? God's name is not recorded in this book, but his fingerprints are all over it. If ever there was a story that reminded us that God is in control, then this is it. And he isn't even mentioned. And I think that's pertinent for all of us as we meet in such a subdued manner today. I can sense the heaviness on people today that this is a book for this age. God is in control even when we can't see it. In these final chapters of Esther, we notice that for those who are seeking to curse and to kill God's people, faced, first of all this morning, a time of reckoning. Turn with me to the section in chapter 9 that David didn't read for us today. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. And there you'll see, verse 1 recalls that on the 13th day of the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And what was this edict? Well, if you want to move very quickly with your fingers, but you don't have to, Esther chapter 3, verses 7 to 10 tell us this was the day when the Jews across the nation were to be indiscriminately slaughtered. But since Queen Esther had pleaded with the king, a new law had now come into effect, recorded for us, and this one you can turn to because it's just one page back, Esther chapter 8, verse 11, a law of protection, a law of protection. The right for the Jews to take arms and protect their people on that day of persecution. And so, this day has arrived. This new day has dawned. A day that should have brought slaughter to the Jews now brings salvation for the Jews. Aided and by government officials, look at verse 3, across all the provinces, all those with authority, sided with Mordecai. But as we read through the chapter, we come to realize that Haman was not the only one who had hatred in his heart for the Jews. The Jews did not go picking a fight that day, but they were granted protection in the fight, which resulted in a significant loss of life. Scan with me down the verses. Esther chapter 9 and 10 can seem a little unsettling as it depicts the Jews overcoming their enemies in big numbers. Look at verse 6. 500 men on the streets of the capital city, Susa, were slaughtered. Then the 10 sons of Haman are hanged in verses 7 to 10. 300 more on the second day in verse 15. And 75,000 others across the provinces. That's a significant loss of life. At a very superficial level, it appears that the good guys have very quickly become the bad guys, killing and with blood on the streets. Why does a brilliant drama end in such bitterness, we might ask? But then again, if that is how we read the Old Testament, if that is how we read Esther, we have missed the point altogether. Whatever's happening in Esther 9 is known as a 
holy war. There's an ancient sacred conflict that's going on that happened between Eve and the serpent in the garden, Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, David and Goliath. The Jews are no cutthroat mob roaming around the streets seeking to wreak havoc. They haven't gone off radar. Every dead body lying in the street that day started that day by wanting to kill the people of God. They went out to kill, but they end up being killed. Remember when David Bingham introduced us to Haman's family tree back in Esther chapter 3? In chapter 3, verse 1, Haman is described there as an Agagite. It's a great name, isn't it? An Agagite. He was from a race known as the Amalekites, who should have been destroyed way back in Saul's day. They were a particularly despicable people. How do I know? Well, if you know your Old Testament history, whenever the children of Israel were making their way through the desert, and the, the mothers who were pregnant, and the young, mothers of young children, and lots of the young children were right at the back of the queue, right at the back of the children of Israel, making their way to the promised land. And on one particular day, the Amalekites attacked the women and children and slaughtered them because they were the weakest and the most vulnerable and the easiest prey. From that moment, the Amalekites were cursed by God. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us. When the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies around you, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Why should you not forget? Because God is always on the side of the widow and the orphan and the most vulnerable. Fast forward hundreds of years later from that journey to the promised land, to the promised land, to Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is instructed to finish the job that they should have done, to wipe out all the Amalekites. But you know what? King Saul didn't do it. He spurred the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, because he wanted to keep all his goods. So what we see unfolding at the end of the book of Esther is not retaliation, but it's a reckoning. A day of judgment has finally come on the people that God had cursed. Who are described at the end of Deuteronomy 25 as those who have no fear of God. Whereas the rest of the citizens of Susa at this time, verse 3, tell us there was a fear of Mordecai and his God. You know, we often recoil from some of these Old Testament passages and probably the question I get asked more than any others by young people and children and adults alike is why is there so much slaughter in the Old Testament? Surely we should cry unfair and how could you trust a God like that? But whenever we do that, it actually reveals our hearts, not God's. Because it shows a singular lack of self-awareness about the dangers of sin. We forget how desperately sinful sin is. In other words, we've missed how sinful our sin is. Passages like this in the Bible are examples to us of the consequences of sin. For sin not only separates us from God, sin will always be severely dealt with by God. One of my favorite movies is the 1993 Wild West film called Tombstone. I'm not big into Wild West films, but my favorite film is Tombstone, starring Kurt Russell, in which he acts the great lawkeeper and gunslinger Wyatt Earp. Tombstone was a town that had been overrun by an evil gang known as the Cowboys. 
who held the townspeople in a state of fear for years. They were lawless and treated people and property with utter contempt, and they abused the vulnerable. That is until Wyatt Earp and his family ride into town alongside the legendary Doc Holliday. And there they begin to restore order and peace and safety to a previously prosperous town. But there's one climactic scene towards the end of the film before the dramatic final showdown between the Earp family and the cowboys when Wyatt Earp looks at Ike Clanton, the leader of the cowboys, and says, you tell him we're coming. You tell him we're coming, and you tell him we're bringing hell with us. In other words, Wyatt Earp, as a representative of all that is good and the law, upholding what's right, in order to restore peace and justice, judgment has to fall. Enough is enough. Sin must be stamped out. We have to deal with the blight of sin among us, and hell is coming. Not a time of revenge, but reckoning, because all of us would agree that wrongdoers must pay for their crime. There isn't one of us sitting here today who don't think that wrongdoers must pay for their crimes. And before a holy God, we've all got to pay for our crimes. And here in Esther chapter 9, hell is coming. A day of reckoning for the humans of this world has arrived. But we all have lived like the cowboys in Tombstone. We have all gone about our lives careless and with what God really thinks and how we've broken God's law. A holy God must deal with the stain of sin in this world and in our lives because we deserve hell. And here in the history books of the Old Testament, we get a trailer, an advert, a glimpse of what is yet to come for those who continually despise God's great salvation. For if Esther chapter 9 is there in the Old Testament, later on today, read Revelation chapter 16 in the New Testament, where on God's instructions, his angels pour great bowls of wrath upon the sinful and unrepentant of the earth. What's recorded there? Let me give you a summary. Ugly, festering boils in those who worship anything but God. Rivers of blood in those who shun God's prophets and preachers. A searing heat. Horrible, uncontrollable plagues in those who refuse to repent and glorify God. Darkness in a place of agony and torment. Sores that cannot be scratched. A place of intense pain. People biting through their tongues, and that won't even be enough to placate the pain. Nations quaking. All the cities and prosperous places collapsing under them all the things that once gave support totally giving way. In those few verses in Revelation 16, we have a powerful reminder of the grave danger of facing God's judgment, having never repented of sin and spending our lives worshipping worthless things. Friends, the judgment of God without relying on Jesus Christ or hiding in his safety as our means of salvation is facing a day of reckoning all alone and an eternity in agony. Friends, it's going to hell. It's intense and it's searing and it's painful and it's awful. All the props of money and family reputation and business and farm kicked from under us for nothing. And one day Jesus is coming back 
And he's bringing heaven and security for his people. But he's bringing hell for all who have despised his mercy held out towards them. Judgment will fall. Yes, I say it lovingly, he will bring hell with him. Always say, David, that's horrific. What kind of God could do that? How could he be a God of love and send people to hell? But then cut across to the cross for a moment. And there we see a different day of reckoning all together. A day when judgment fell and hell came crashing down on one man on that central tree. It's there we see how shockingly sinful our sin actually is, that it actually took the life of the very Son of God. The consequence of being human-hearted, proud and pushy, with thoughts only of ourselves and nothing of God. For there we see the judgment for sin carried out on Jesus Christ, the sinless one, dies for the sins of the world. Only God could pay for it. Those hours at the cross, it is as though he were Haman, paying for the crimes that he committed. It appears that he has got his comeuppance and he deserves to be there. I mean, only sinners, only criminals are crucified, aren't they? It's there that the bowls of God's wrath are poured out in Jesus. The agony, the heat, the boils he cannot scratch, the pains he cannot shake, the blood that cannot stop, the breaths he cannot take, the intense heat of God's anger burning him up, the world quaking at his feet as creation shakes at its maker's demise, everything the Son of God had known taken away from him. All of it taken from him. As sin separates him from God's help, sin takes him to the place of agony and hellish torment and turbulence of mind as he carries your sin and he carries my sin. It's at that moment we cannot say, how could God do that? He has blotted out on that inky day, and he has blotted out instead of us. Friends, this finale of Esther is yet another Old Testament picture of that age-old warfare that finds its climatic expression in the Lord Jesus Christ, who fought the holy war against Satan himself, this is Christ's holy war as he triumphs by bearing the sins of his people on the cross. For there the devil is disarmed and defeated because the sinless son took the sinner's place. He was hung upon the cursed tree so that we might be blessed. Some of us here today might be discouraged in our fight against sin. Maybe you feel you'll never overcome that besetting sin or addiction or attraction that has that great deep hook in your heart. Our conscience is stinging us every day about the things that we've done. We could be utterly ashamed if our thoughts were exposed. But maybe you're longing to be free from that. The battle is too much. Sin too ugly. Your guilt too heavy. Your shame too scandalous. And we cry out with Paul, Who can deliver me from this body of death? Whilst others here today work in homes or hospitals or schools or factories where the claims of the gospel are ridiculed, and we're getting weary. We're tired out wondering, can we go on taking our stand? Romans chapter 16, verse 20 reminds us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. All oh, friends here in Union Road today, cling to the God of peace. Cling to the God of peace. The victory has already been won. In my student days, the National Lottery had just begun. And in one student house in Belfast where I knew a couple of fellas, there was a group of guys who were always playing 
incredibly meticulous pranks on each other. On one particular Saturday, one of my friends recorded the national lottery draw on his video recorder. Kids, you can ask your parents what a video recorder is later. But he had managed to get a blank ticket by sweet-talking the girl at the newsagents. So he came home and he circled all the numbers that had already come up on his blank ticket and waited for his mates to come in later that night. He knew that one of the lads amongst that group always checked his ticket and wanted to watch the recording of the lottery. So they sat down and my friend played along and played the part brilliantly. I've got three of these numbers so far, fellas, he said. And then they kept announcing. I think I've got them all. I think I've got the jackpot. Look, look. And so they, they replayed the whole thing again. And sure enough, he had all the numbers. It appeared like he was the next multimillionaire. He was that night's winner. All because he'd already seen what was coming up in advance. His win was assured. But it was all a bluff. Christian friends here today, our win is no bluff. The story of Esther is but a trailer for the main event. For we are already on the winning side. We've already seen the recording of the victory and it's played out for us through Jesus Christ who died but is now resurrected. Our hope is eternally secure so that whenever the worst comes to us, just like it came to the Jews that day, we are protected. Victory has already been accomplished at Calvary. And whilst troubles come and sadness might fill our hearts, our coronavirus worries us, our sin might even drag us down, we need reminding that whatever happens, we are safe forever in Christ. And so we keep on keeping on, knowing that sin and Satan and cynicism and unbelief will not win because Jesus already has. So today we prepare for that time of reckoning. And I hope you find your security in this Christ. For he was the one that was hung on that pole. Don't worry, my last two points are really short. Here's the second one. This should be a time for remembering. Verses 20 to 32. On Monday and Tuesday of this past week, I think this is incredible the way this has fallen. On Monday and Tuesday of this past week, Jews all around the world gathered in their homes for an annual celebration. Children dressed up, there was partying and celebrating. Families made special pasties and there was general joy around the Jewish community. Yes, because this last week, Jewish community celebrated Purim. The festival that records the story of the rescue of the Jews through Esther and Mordecai. Every time they hear Mordecai's name mentioned, there's a big cheer goes up. And every time, well, Haman's name is mentioned, out come the Graggers. I woke a few of you up. Out come the Graggers to drown out the name of Haman. So every time his name is mentioned, the kids all do that. For this was a people who dare not forget their salvation from destruction 3,000 years ago. And you know what they eat? I think this is class. The pastries they make have three corners, and they're called Haman's ears. So kids can rip the ears off Haman and go to Haman together. Because victory is assured. Salvation has been accomplished. Friends, that's the Jewish community who still celebrate this from 3,000 years ago. 
this was a people called to remember. The annual celebration is called Purim because that means it was like the dice that was rolled, the, the lot that was drawn. That was the day on which it fell that the Jews would be under attack. But of course, those days of fear became days of rejoicing. Look at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, ordering that these should be days of annual celebration, the 14th and 15th days of Adar. And look at verse 22, when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. It was a time, verse 22, of feasting, of joy, of giving presents, of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It was a time to celebrate. Look what our God can do. It was spontaneous. And then it became standardized. What a natural reaction of rejoicing that became a permanent holiday according to Esther's law. Look at verse 29. Esther then wrote it into law that it was to go out across all the provinces. She says, even you faraway places, you people at the far side of the world, you're to celebrate too. We haven't forgotten about you. I think these verses are summarized in three phrases. Teach it, says Mordecai. Remember it, says Mordecai. Actively enjoy it, says Mordecai. But whatever you do, don't forget it. For we all know how easy it is to forget, don't we? We all need someone to tell us, to remind us, to encourage us, to draw us back to that joy, to recite its importance. And here we are again today in Union Road, and we're not celebrating Purim, but we are here today, and we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday again. Don't have to wait for Easter for it. This is the day when Jesus rose from the grave. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And my role is to urge you and provoke you and encourage you to rejoice in the wonderful salvation that we have found in Jesus Christ, who emerged from that garden tomb, having folded his grave clothes in defeat of death. And he stands before you in Union Road again today. And you know what he says to you? Do you see my hands? Do you see my feet? I am alive. Even if you're doubting or struggling or have had a horrific week, you've been battered in the week gone by, or you're going to face a storm in the week to come, I am here for you. I'm yours. And you're mine forever. I am your resurrection and life. I am here to remind you that you are safe and secure. Set your sports obsessions and your schoolwork and your business and your plans and your birthday parties aside today. Sundays are the day to celebrate me, to celebrate with God's people. As we, It's right that we feast on a Sunday lunch. It's right that we celebrate and sing on a Sunday. We're to enjoy being His. And I don't know whether you noticed that parents, as David read those verses today, but this is not an option to be celebrated. If you're a Christian, you're to be nowhere else on a Sunday but church and with God's people. This is not a day for birthday parties or sleepovers or sports events. This is a day to be reminded that I am his and he is mine forever. And that responsibility rests with parents who are the primary people to share the faith with their children from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Three times it says, pass this on to your descendants. 
And so that means we've got to be very careful as parents, don't we? The way we talk about church and preaching and praise and Christ and Christians. If we're always muttering and grumbling and disinterested and bored about church, well, funny enough, your kids will grow up muttering and grumbling and disinterested and bored in church. Because you've passed it on to them. But if you come to this place celebrating and rejoicing, this place where we meet with the people of God and sing the praises of God and thrill with the grace of God, our kids will want to be there too. They will. Don Carson, the Canadian theologian, said this. I think it's very profound. The first generation accepts the gospel. The second generation, if it's not taught it, will assume the gospel. And the third generation will therefore reject the gospel. If you as parents are not actively sharing the gospel with your children every day, children will just assume the gospel and your grandchildren will reject the gospel. That's how it's reflected in the Bible time and time again. That means every day, of every week, of every month, that's our priority. We never assume. We always teach. I know that some of you have suffered from vertigo and motion sickness in the past, but I remember talking to a merchant sailor who told me about his first few months at sea. Every day in those early weeks, he felt the whole world was just spinning around. He could barely stand and do his work until he got his sea legs. Three months on, no matter where he walked in that boat, the horizon seemed level again. His head was steady and his feet never gave way. He needed recentering of gravity in an often stormy environment. Folks, God has been so, so good to us. He's given us this day, every week, to get our Christian sea legs back. Because we're all going out into a world that's bobbing and tossing and turning and swirling. He gives us this day to steady us after the battling we took last week or the storm that we walk into this week. And you know what? He even gives us two chances on a Sunday morning and evening. How gracious is our God? How good is he towards us? Sundays are to steady us so we anchor in Christ. And all the frenzy that is family life, and I say to the boys and girls and young people who are sitting here, and some are listening and some are reading other things and some are taking notes, there's dance classes and GCSEs and swimming club and football fixtures and sleepovers and transfer tests and gym membership. And for older ones, there's overnight shifts. There's GP appointments. There's tummy bugs. There's money worries. That's why we need one day, one day to recenter it all, to recall what our God has done for us. And whenever you replace that one thing with anything else, the rest of the week will fall apart. For this is the day we will remember that our sorrow was turned to joy, our mourning to celebration, for our Christ is coming. Why would you not want to be with God's people celebrating every Sunday? Do our friends know that this day, this Savior, matters most more than anything else? more than any other date or person in our minds or our diaries, that this is our party day every week when we hear this word read and we're reminded the light of the world is broken in and no matter how dark things get, we are secure. Would you not want to meet to celebrate that? You'd be mad not to. Mordecai and Esther insisted that God's people 
had a time to remember. And thirdly, back to the old routine. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. I don't know about you. I feel a little bit cheated by chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. It kind of almost feels like a bit of a letdown with all the drama that's gone before. Because look at verse 1. It's all about taxes. <laughs> Imagine that. One of the greatest stories in the Bible, and it finishes with the last chapter, it starts about a king looking for taxes. <sighs> I don't know about you. I feel very let down by that. But why is it there? Well, as you read on verses 2 and 3, you see that Mordecai and Esther are both in places of power, but neither of them is the king. They've both reached second place, but neither of them is calling the shots. Xerxes is still on the throne. We get to the end of Esther, and what's incredibly stunning celebration of God's people, but the author deliberately leaves us with that sense of, don't get carried away. The final victory hasn't come yet. The true Savior hasn't arrived. A better king is what we need. Look there, not at Esther or Mordecai, not them, not yet. We need a better king to come. And as we walk away today and take our leave of this book, surely it's the most helpful thing that can teach us. It is, in the end, a call to look to Jesus. For no mere man or woman will do or could ever do. The end of Esther tells us, do not put your trust, do not seek your comfort, do not locate your value in the ministry of your pastors or in the love of your spouses or in the successes of your children, much less in yourselves. Look to Christ, for we need a better king. He is the true and only Savior. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Esther is not just the story of a stunning queen. It's the story of God. Unseen, yes, but he's always there. And we praise God that we know better than Esther and Mordecai. For we have seen our God. In the Christ who came at Bethlehem, born of a virgin. In the garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with the task that lay ahead. On the cross as he dies for our sin dead in a lifeless tomb, standing before his friends in resurrection power, seated in glory from where one day he will return. Friends, at this time in our world, we face an uncertain future, but we know the certainty, the gold-plated, rock-solid guarantee that our God reigns. He's unseen, yes, but he hasn't gone away, you know. And one day, we will see him as he is. And you know, folks, you'll either see him on a day of reckoning, or you'll see him on a day of salvation. Let's pray. Just going to leave a few moments quiet and all the anxious nature of these heady days we need to stop before our God and be reminded of those things of first importance and maybe even God in his mercy is giving us these days, these weeks to stop from all that running around and have time with him for one day we will all meet him either in salvation or in reckoning speak to us O God and may we see that salvation is not found in our bank accounts or our businesses or our relationships or our family. 
or even those desires to have those things. But salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. And in him we are eternally saved. Thank you, Father. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Fill us, Holy Spirit.